Bible, I invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of Revelation. If you have an electronic device, then I encourage you to turn to the same passage in your scriptures. Let's just do a quick survey. How many people, just this morning, just those who have a copy of the scripture in front of you, not everybody will, so don't vote those ones. Who's got a hard copy edition of the scriptures with them this morning? Oh, a few of you. Hands down. Who's got an electronic copy? Phone, iPad, something else? Oh, not as many as I thought. There's an awful lot of you here without anything in front of you. <laughs> For those of you, uh, you might like to turn your eyes to the screen and we're going to read... What are we going to read, Gary? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Have you got 17? Okay. Um, I'm not sure if... You, let's read the first bit of Re Revelation 17 anyway. <clears throat> it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, so that's from before, uh, came and said to me, Come and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. The angel carried me away into this, in, in the spirit into a desert. <coughs> Excuse me. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and the beast had seven heads, ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearl. She had a gold cup in her hand, but the gold cup was filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mystery of the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people and the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. The angel said to me, why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast, which you saw, once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and then go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. Seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. This beast who once was, now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits 
uh, peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns that you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They'll eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So far, we're doing okay, right? Everybody clear? Everybody on the same page? Uh, doesn't get any easier than this one. We need to pray. I just want to draw your attention, please, to verse 9. It says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. And I think it was Brendan who last week indicated that he thought he was one with wisdom and that he had calculated the number of the beast, but that he wasn't telling anybody. So if you don't understand anything this morning, then I encourage you to go find Brendan. <laughs> so as it calls for mind with wisdom and ask him what he thinks this means. In fact, he's speaking tonight. And we spoke about it earlier in the week. Well, later... We spoke about it during the week, and uh, his view is very different to mine. Um, so I will be interested to see what he will present tonight. Um, I tend to have a more literal, specific view. I'm a futurist, so I think all of this is in the future. I don't think it's in the past. It has application to the present, but I don't think it's the present. Brendan tends to read it as being in the present with application that will move into the future, if you understand that, and if you don't. That's not really important. What's important is you hear me, not him. And that's that's going to be on the internet, isn't it? I am joking, joking, joking. I encourage you to come listen to Brendan. He's a very gifted speaker. And he very rarely I hear him and he doesn't offer me some insight or some challenge. He's a gift. And I'm... Um, preempting the pastoral team here, well not preempting, I'm not wanting to force the pastoral team's hand or the members for that matter, but he finishes up as a student this year and I think we need to do something about that. So the pastoral team is processing that, they're thinking about it, they're praying about it, they're trying to work out what's the best way to go forward. Um, but we won't have time to get it done before then, so please pray for him, Brendan that is, and whatever God's going to be doing with him into his future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's always good to be together with one another. It's certainly great, Lord, to be able to worship together, to sing songs that exalt you and that move and challenge and encourage us. Thank you for our service so far this morning. Thank you for your word. And what an incredible privilege it is, Lord, for us to be freely able to read and to consider, to debate and to apply. We pray that you might do that now by your spirit, through your word to the honour and glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Before I proceed any further, last night we had a party here in the church that a member of this congregation, a member of our church and a person who attends this congregation and night and some, he's all over the shop. He comes to all the services nearly. Mark Lowe turned 50 on Friday and he's here this morning. Fifty. He's old. <laughs> we had a great time last night for those of you who were here, and uh, it was certainly great to rejoice. Um, I'm certainly very surprised that Mark did make it to fifty, the way that he lives his life and the pressure he puts himself under. 
But, Cole, you and I know he's just a young whippersnapper, isn't he? He's got a long way to go. Revelation. <clears throat> Let me give you a brief uh, summary of where we're up to, and then I'm going to work my way through chapter 17. And then I'm going to go very quickly. I'll give the outline for 18, but without focusing on it, because it's, it'll become pretty clear. And then take you into 19. And in the next, that'll be the first 10 minutes. <laughs> And then in the last, I really want to focus upon the application. That's where we need to get to. So let's see how we do. Revelation, as you know, is a series of visions that John sees and records. And I strongly suspect the visions that he sees, whilst accurately recorded, are not in sequence. Somebody once described Nostradamus, the prophet, false prophet, who wrote out all of these quatrains or whatever and then uh, someone described it as he wrote them all out and then he stood at the top of the stairs and he threw them down the stairs and then he went down and picked them up and that's the order that you read them in. In other words, you can't read them from beginning to end. It's not sequential. It's not in order. That's, um, what's his name? Nostradamus. Who's, don't worry about him, you know, he's not true, not real. Well, he was a real person, but not a real prophet. Revelation's a bit like that. I'm not suggesting John stood at the top of the stairs and threw them down, but I am suggesting to you that he has a vision, and then he has another vision, and then the angel will give him an explanation of that part of that vision, and that goes in there. And then he might return to the first part of the vision and expand that, and there are explanations and footnotes and appendixes, and this part of Revelation is exactly that. Let me show it to you. If you have a look at chapter 16 which is where the seven bowls have been poured out. We've been through the seven seals. We've, you may have read the seven trumpets. And then in 16, it's the seven bowls. There's an amazing parallel between them. And there's an increasing intensity. So that in the seven trumpets, it's a third of the sun, a third of the ocean, a third of the green grass, a third of the world is affected and destroyed. When you get to the seven bowls, this one, chapter 16, it's 100%. There's a rising intensity in the judgment. 100% of the sun is affected. 100% of the ocean is affected. And the rivers and the grass, etc. There's this rising, shortening period of intensity at the end. Let's read chapter 16, verse 17 and following. If Gary can find that, that would be helpful. My apologies to Gary. And you're going to have to work hard, mate. <clears throat> All my bad, not his. Uh, Revelation 16:17 says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It's done. Done. Finished. End of creation. God says, Done. It's good. It's very good. Jesus on the cross, before he died, said, It's done. It's finished. Well, here at the end of space-time history, we have the voice from heaven saying, when the seven bowl is poured out, done. This is the end of all of God's wrath, the end of space-time history, uh, and we'll read it. Uh, then there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. We've heard that phrase three or four times already, and it's always a phrase of judgment. No earthquake has ever occurred like this since mankind has been on earth. This is a big one, the biggest one. So tremendous was the quake. The great city, which we'll come to, split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. 
God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains couldn't be found. We've read that before at the end of the trumpets. From the sky, huge hailstones. We had a hailstorm last week, didn't we? From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 40 kilograms. My goodness. Fell on people. What's their response? They curse God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Doesn't soften their hearts, doesn't drop them to their knees. They remain defiant and they shake their hands in the face of the one they know caused it, God. Huge hailstones. Now, I'm a futurist. I tend to read that. That's what's going to happen. There's going to be a massive earthquake. There's going to be huge destruction and there's going to be the mother of all hailstorms right at the end. So now we don't have a lot of detail. In the middle of that, John mentions this city. So now chapter 17, you get this, hang on, footnote. Let me expand that a little bit more. And in 1718, he will expand that seventh bowl description. Does that make sense? Following me? Okay. And so now we have the angel uh, coming and speaking to John. Which angel was it of the seven angels? Uh, We're not told, so we don't know. People like to conjecture. It's actually the last one because he's the one who did that one and so now he's the one going to explain it. Well, that's nice, that fits, but we're not actually told which one it was. He says, come and I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. Who's this? Well, if you jump down to verse 5, she's identified. The name written on her forehead was a mystery and she is called Babylon the Great. My view is that what John sees is of a massive city, Babylon, which will be rebuilt, restored, and will be the centre of commerce and of religion in the world. My view. And this is how I certainly read it. And in this vision in John chapter 17 where John sees this woman, this prostitute, which if you go to the end of the chapter, verse 18, he says the woman that you saw is in fact the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So the prostitute, which is a woman, is not a person, but it's a city. And the beast that he sees is not an animal, but in fact it's a person. Clear? This prostitute, the city, and this beast, the Antichrist, are in some sort of cooperative relationship. She is seen to be riding upon it. He is either supporting it or she's controlling him. That's very unlikely, so probably the former. They are working together in the first part for a period of time. But at some point in time, chapter 17 tells us uh, that the... Well, let me just stick with that. So the prostitute that he sees is a city. And it's a city that is linked with ancient Babylon. How do I know that? Well, because that's what he says uh, in the passage. As you can read it through. Um, John is, I think this is significant. John, in verse 6, the second half of it, I saw the woman who was drunk with the blood of God's holy people and the blood of those who bear testimony to Jesus. This city and the Antichrist and part of it is his world headquarters is going to be violently opposed to Jesus and to Christians. 
which links in with other scriptures, it links in with what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 9 and following, where he says that you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. We're not there yet, but that time's coming. We're simply as followers of the Lord Jesus. We'll be persecuted, we'll be hunted, just like our brothers and sisters are now in some parts of the world. If you're a Christian in some parts of the world, you are persecuted. You are legislated against. I don't know what they did, so I don't know this full story, but open-air campaigners who often, weekly, go to one of our local railway stations and will stand there and preach the gospel. Two weeks ago, open-air campaigners down at uh, the railway station at Woodridge had the police come and arrest them. Arrest them. Christians proclaiming the gospel. Now, what did they do to get them arrested? I don't know. Did they break the law in some way? Was there simply a complaint by somebody? And they were, I don't know the full story. But uh, the pastor who was part of that, who didn't happen to be there on that day, was just telling me that part of the story. It's coming. Not here yet, but it is coming. And if you heard our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, yesterday speak about ISIS and what happened in France, and he was using very interesting language about calling that wicked and evil and how we should oppose it and he's speaking almost like a believer I don't know his spiritual condition but we need to certainly pray for him but he spoke correctly so this woman is a city and the city of Babylon somebody just recently tried to restore the city of Babylon what was his name? Saddam Hussein, but we killed him. So now we've stuffed up God's plan. I don't know what we're going to do now. <laughs> Did you know that last century, the century before last, Napoleon made a decision that he thought Babylon strategically, the location of Babylon, the Euphrates River, where it was, would be strategically significant to control a significant amount of area. He drew up plans to rebuild it, Napoleon. So says John Phillips in his commentary. Saddam Hussein started to rebuild it. I believe the Bible teaches that Babylon must be restored, rebuilt. When? I don't know when, but it will be. Why? Well, because God said something about it. If you read Isaiah 13, if you read Isaiah, particularly Jeremiah 51 and 50 and 51, if you read those, God says that Babylon will be destroyed in this way. It'll happen suddenly. And as a result of that destruction, it will be uninhabited. Nobody will live in it. It'll be bygone era. That's what he's going to say in chapter 18 here in Revelation as well. That prophecy given by Isaiah, given by Jeremiah, has not been fulfilled. So now the way I read the scriptures, that means God doesn't tell lies. And so therefore Babylon has got to come back and that prophecy that Jeremiah and Isaiah are giving, and now which John is giving in Revelation 17 and 18, is going to be fulfilled in the future. That's how I read it. That all fits together for me. I'm quite happy for you to come and chat with me about it, and we can you know, discuss and learn together. So Babylon's going to be rebuilt, restored. Doesn't tell us by whom. But we are told in this passage that there is going to be a close relationship between that city, that prostitute here and the beast 
And we're given some information about the beast. We've met this beast, this creature before in Revelation 13. It comes up out of the sea. There's another one that comes out of the land. It's the Antichrist and it's the false prophet who would have come. And the angel takes some of the information from chapter 11 and from chapter 13 and he puts it in here and he gives us new information as well. Well, what are we told about this beast? We are told in verse 3 that it was scarlet coloured. That's, you know, significant because scarlet is not just a colour of luxury and wealth, but it's also in the scriptures a colour for sin. That's a scarlet robe that they placed on Jesus before they take him to the cross because he is taking upon himself the sin of the world. There are those sorts of, you know, verbal, pictorial links and clashes all the way through Revelation. There's hundreds of them. Um, But again, you have to be careful and not too dogmatic. Anyway, this scarlet beast um, was covered with blasphemous names, names that defy God, that are opposed to him, and that ultimately will refer to himself, his self-deification, because he will set himself up as God and, chapter 13, will be worshipped. And many people, if not all people, will worship him. If you don't worship him, you'll be killed. Revelation 13. He has seven heads and ten horns. The way that I understand that is, as the angel goes on to explain, I'm going to explain this to you. Verse 8, the beast you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come. He'll come out of the abyss, and when he comes out of the abyss, he'll be here for a short time, then he'll go to destruction. This calls for a mind for wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits, verse 9. And everybody jumps up and down and says, ah, the seven hills of Rome. This is Rome. Many people say that. I don't think it's that. I think there is this like this double reference, this double metaphor. Because he goes the very next verse to say they are also seven kings. Daniel does exactly the same thing in Daniel chapter 7. Yep, chapter 7. Where he's talking about kings, but then he's talking about kingdoms. And he uses them interchangeably. And the more I read this and think about it, that's what we're talking about with this beast. This seven-headed beast uh, are like seven kingdoms, seven empires. Five of them have fallen. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, gone. One is Roman Empire, when John's writing, and one is to come, the last one. And the last one, like Daniel teaches, is going to be an amalgamation, a combination of all of these previous empires. And they'll have as king over them this beast, this antichrist, this person out of Revelation 13. This passage goes on to tell us that this last one, the seventh one, is going to also have ten horns. And we're told in verse 12, these are also ten kings, ten kings from ten different nations or countries or whatever. And those ten countries are going to form a confederacy. They're going to receive a kingdom for a very short time, one hour, right at the end. And they're going to give their authority, a combined event to this antichrist, this leader who's based in Babylon. And then they're going to wage war, verse 14, against the Lamb. They combine forces to get rid of Christianity, to get rid of the gospel, to wipe it out. 
but the lamb will come and he'll be victorious. Then the angel said to me, and well, he moves on. Um, follow? Sort of. Then the angel turned his attention back to the prostitute said, the woman you said saw sitting on many waters, well, the waters represent all the people and nations of the world. This city will influence all nations, all peoples, all language groups. Such will be her influence, its influence, spiritually speaking, religiously speaking. Um, the beast and the ten horns, the Antichrist and those ten kings who will join with him um, will turn on the prostitute. They were cooperating. They were working together. But there's going to come a point, a transition in the relationship where they are now going to destroy that city of Babylon. Chapter 18 will expand that. They'll bring her to ruin, they'll leave her naked, they'll eat her flesh, yuck, and they'll burn her with fire. Why? Verse 17. Because there is a God in heaven who is sovereignly working his purposes out. He put it into the hearts of those kings to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over their royal authority to the beast and then God's words will be fulfilled. God's words of Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 will be fulfilled. As he predicted what would happen to the city, so it will happen. God's working to allow that to happen. Let me move on. Um, this chapter 18, I want to go pretty quickly through it. Um, I hope that's clear because all of this has got to make sense for us and apply to us. He says, after this, so after getting that explanation, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. Big, bright, powerful angel with a mighty voice. He declares, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's gone. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. She's disgusting and destroyed. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. They had some sort of spiritual liaison. They were influenced by Babylonian religiosity. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. We have a parallel today which is not exact, but it's a bit like the influence of the United States in many nations of our world. Does that make sense? The United States dabbles and mucks around with and does lots of things in many nations of our world. Now, I'm not being anti-American and I'm not trying to be critical, I'm just trying to be factual. And just like Washington makes a decision which will affect that nation over there, so Babylon at the end will have even greater control over the end. That city will rule the nations of the world. It's going to be a global network. What does all this mean? Well, don't panic just yet. Don't sell your house, don't sell your car, and don't head for the hills. Don't do that. Because they'll get you there too. Then he goes on to say, there's a warning then. In chapter 18, there are five voices. There is that voice of condemnation. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. She's gone. She's demonized, she's unclean. The nations, the kings and the merchants, they're all upset about it, but she's gone. Then verses 4 to 8, second voice, there's a voice of separation. This is to us, the believers. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, 
so that you will not share in her sins and so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. God's going to give her back double for all that she gave. God's going to judge her. Come out from among her. If I get time, I want to come back to that. He's not saying that we are to leave the world. What he is saying in this case is certainly get out of the city of Babylon. But he's also saying that we are to live separate lives from them. Just like it says many times through Revelation, believers, followers of Jesus are going to experience persecution and pressure. There will be pressure to conform because the Antichrist and Babylon and all of that system will be so popular and so impressive. Even John, I think, was attracted to it and he gets the angel's rebuke. Second voice, voice of separation, steer clear. Third voice, it's the voice of lamentation. This is the kings, the merchants and the sea captains. They're all horrified, they're all weeping, they're all a source of our wealth and luxury and our comfort is gone. Our air conditioners don't work anymore. What are we going to do? It's, they're devastated by Babylon's sudden demise. And yet through it all, all through Revelation, Regardless of whatever plague or trumpet or seal God does or punishment he unleashes on the world, whether it's in creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, whether it's the oceans, the rivers, or whether it's people, whatever God does to punish, to get people's attention, they refuse to repent. There are lots of places. Let me just show you just one. Back in chapter 16, this is during um, the seven... No, the seven bowls. The seven, yeah, bowls. Verse 9 of chapter 16. The sun is affected and they're seared with an intense heat and they curse the name of God who had control over these plagues and they refuse to repent and glorify him. Things are getting worse and people are becoming even more defiant. Verse 11. They curse the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they refuse to repent of what they had done. Or finally, verse 21. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing 40 kilograms, fell on the people. They curse God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. It's also in chapter 9, it's also in chapter 6. People will refuse to repent. That's the reality of the world that we are heading into. So in one sense, we ought not to be surprised by that. We need to be armed and aware. Our job is to present the gospel. It's up to both God working in people and them responding to the offer. It's not our job to make them respond. Voice of condemnation, voice of separation, voice of lamentation, that was. And then there is verse 20, the voice of celebration. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her, Babylon with the judgment that she imposed on you. Rejoice, she's gone. That gets expanded into chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Just that one verse gets this whole footnote. There are four hallelujahs. Again, there are five voices in chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. The fifth voice in, verse, in chapter 18 is the finality of Babylon's doom. If you've got a pen, you can write down the reference, Jeremiah 51, it's the last paragraph, Verses 59 to 64. Read that prophecy, Jeremiah 51, and then take note of this 
in Revelation 18. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and he threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of the harpist, musicians, pipers, trumpets will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will be found in you again. The sound of a millstone won't be heard. The light of the lamp won't shine. The voice of the bride and the groom will never be heard. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her, Babylon, was found the blood of the prophets and of God's people, and all who have been slaughtered on earth, gone. Then when you look at the time references there, all of this happens in an hour. Short period of time. Shortest period of time the ancient world could actually measure. And that's the point. It's going to happen. It's going to happen quickly. It's going to get terrible. It's going to be very hard for us as followers of the Lord Jesus if we are alive in this time. And as intense as it is, it's going to be short. And then God will suddenly end it. Here is the summary of what we said. Then I want to take a few minutes for application. John sees a woman on a beast. The beast has seven heads and ten horns, covered with blasphemous names. The woman who is on the beast is a city, not a person. She is named Babylon. She will have global influence at all levels of society. The rich, the poor, the kings, the merchants, the peoples, the nations, everybody. And she somehow, for a period of time, will be closely associated with the beast, the Antichrist. The beast, he gives us details on, is actually a person, not an animal. It's the Antichrist. He's the ruler of the last empire. Five have fallen. One is the one to come, that one, which is a combination of all of these other ones, of all of these different beasts and animals put together into that one, the last one. And if I read the scriptures correctly, the angel tells us that Antichrist, that leader of that last empire, who was one of the seven previous kings, will also be an eighth, which from Revelation 13 means he will be ruling, he will die, and he will rise to life again, just like Jesus. The Antichrist will imitate and parallel many of the things that Jesus did. He will be the great imposter. It'll be so impressive for the people of the world. They'll say, who is like that? Who can fight against him? Everybody should follow him. Everybody should bow down and worship him. There'll be a great influence to do so. That's why John tells us regularly, this calls for wisdom. You need to understand. His time is short. Stand your ground. Then, uh, then, final summary, verse 17, John tells us that in verse 17 of chapter 17 <clears throat> that God is sovereignly at work. Babylon will come up and go down. The Antichrist will be in an empire and be destroyed. He'll be crushed. Heaven wins. Jesus will exert his power. The Lord Jesus has or is unrolling the scroll, opening the seals. The trumpets will sound. The bowls will be poured out. It will get intense the attitude of the antichrist will be nothing can hurt me 18.7 but he'll be destroyed in an instance when Jesus returns well, what about between now 
and then? What are we to do? Well, there's a clue, I think, in this is how I read it, and not many other you know, commentators or preachers that I've heard read it this way. There are some, but we're in the minority. So I offer this. This is my view. Um, this is how I read it. Uh, he says, uh, John says, when I saw her, the woman, I was greatly astonished. I don't think John means I was shocked. I think he means I was attracted. It was incredible. It was marvellous. That's almost literally what the Greek word means, to marvel with great marvel. And the angel says to him, I think in a rhetorical question, but a rebuke, what are you marvelling at? Let me explain it to you. Now my point is this. If the Apostle John in the vision can see the woman and the beast and found them to be attractive to him, warning. For those of us who are alive at that point in time, it's going to be tough. There's going to be a very powerful pressure to want to join with them. And in fact, we experience that same pressure, well, we experience something like that pressure now. But then it'll be greater. We have a choice to make. Are we going to follow Jesus or not? Receive him or reject him? Well, most of you, if not all of you, have made this choice. I'm going to receive Jesus. Well, now you've got another decision. Am I going to live for him or am I going to just name his name but still live for myself? Am I going to be sold out and committed or am I going to be worldly and compromising? Check your bank balances. Check your expenses. Where is your priorities going? What's first? What's your dream? What's your goal? Is he first, his purposes, his kingdom, his glory, his service, his people? Or are we tilting our hat at that and paying homage to it? Yeah, 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 yeah we believe that. Uh, but really, we are keen and invested and motivated by this other stuff. It's something worth thinking about. That's the application that comes out of this passage. We need to avoid being worldly or earthly. Don't misunderstand me. Of course, it's okay to have a house and drive a nice car and wear nice clothes and enjoy nice food and go to the cinema and enjoy your life. Of course. But that's not what my life is about. My life is about serving him and that when I'm eating this really nice food and enjoying it, I'm doing so conscious that he is the one who provided it and he gave it to me for enjoyment. Glory to him. As I am doing whatever activity I'm involved in, I am his in the midst of it. As I drive my nice new Corolla and some idiot runs into me. Well, it's not my car. It's his. Uh, <laughs> I am to hold things loosely, not tightly. That's what I'm trying to say. We don't own it. God owns it. But he is entrusted it to us. He says, here, use this. Enjoy this. Manage this. Use it for my honour and glory. Uh, but at the end, it's mine. It comes back to me. John Ortberg wrote a book called um, At the End of the Game, Everything Goes Back in the Box. End of life. Everything goes in the box. And we take nothing with us.
what we have here we are to use wisely and sensibly. As Harold Hughes once said, who was a US senator, he said, as a Christian, this life is all the hell that I'm going to experience. If you're a non-Christian, then this life is all of heaven that you will experience. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? It's true. As we as believers, this is as bad as it's ever going to be, this world. Because after this, our future is incredible. Our future is bright. So what I'm saying is we need to develop this heavenly-mindedness. I know there's an old saying, so heavenly-minded you're of no earthly what? No earthly use. Well, I'm saying to you this morning, I think we all need to be a little bit more heavenly-minded. That's my point. Let our future revolutionise our present. All my stuff belongs to God, given to me to enjoy, to manage, to use. It's not mine. And in the light of that, that's the decision I am to make. In the light of that, then, I am also to work or to endeavour, not only to be heavenly minded, but to bring heaven to earth. Like we pray in the Lord's Prayer, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your kingdom come in my life first. Your kingdom come around my life. Your kingdom come through my life to others. And then plural, your kingdom come in us as a church. Your kingdom come um, not only to be with us, but to be around us, infecting the community. And your kingdom come through us. Does that make sense? Avoid being worldly. Develop heavenly mindedness. Endeavour to bring heaven to earth because this is the job that we're on about. There is a time coming when the city of Babylon will be rebuilt, where the Antichrist will be revealed, where his influence will be all extensive and great and it's going to be a lot tougher than it is now. But don't give in. We serve heaven. We have heaven's victory coming at us. We know that. We are to live like that. And we're to live like that now. Let me read you... Um, a scripture, and then Ali, we're going to sing. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> in view of God's mercy, in view of God's truth, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to Him. This is our true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern and the pressures and the systems of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Don't conform to the world. Be transformed. Follow the Lamb. Um, let's stand together. We're going to sing and then I'll come back and pray.